If you'd like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please consider downloading our free mobile app available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. You're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn. And it's time to get lost in Listener, I don't know who you are, but we're about to get very intimate. Maybe you're on the go. Maybe you're at work and trying not to be. Or maybe you're at home like you ought to be. Wherever you may be, this is Lost and Rewound here on Radio Free Brooklyn. I am Alon Danziker, coming at you from the lair once again this week. Each and every week here on RFB, we uncover the rough and raw sounds of our past selves with the freshest of ears. Now, what the hell does that mean exactly? Well, it means stepping out of the now for a moment and learning a little bit more about how we got from there to here. So for this week's edition, I had the opportunity to ask Bay Area-based duo Grex, how did they get here? Well, allow me to be your solo guide on this week's journey, which we'll begin in a moment. But first, please enjoy this small sampling of Little Wicca Big Feet from Grex's 2014 release, Monster Music. is an art rock and experimental music duo comprised of Carl Evangelista and Ray Scampavia. Based out of Oakland, California, they have worked with such luminaries as Fred Frith, Nels Klein, and even Tony Levin. They've also played a number of festivals, including the United States of Asian America Festival in San Francisco and the Sonics Circus Festival based out of Washington, D.C. And this year alone, more importantly, they have organized not one, not two, but three, three lockdown festivals. Their newest album is out now, and it is called Everything You Said Was Wrong, which can be heard and purchased on Bandcamp. Welcome to Lost and Rewound, Ray and Carl, a.k.a. Grux. 
Thanks for having us. Hello. How are you doing? I know that it is devastating out there, and um, you guys have uh, been managing despite uh, the, even the being in the worst of circumstances. Oh, it can always get worse. Yeah. That's one take-home lesson for this year. So That's... I think we're doing fine. All things considered, <laughs> I think we're doing fine. You've been working on this lockdown festival, of which, uh, Carl, I, I got a chance to learn a little about this when you were on our uh, friend Rachel Cleary show here and now with Rachel C. Um, you were talking about the lockdown festival at the time, which was number two, and then you've done a third one since then. Um, how did this all come about? The Bay Area locked down pretty early. I think it was one of the first regions to lock down. And we um, very quickly lost the entire music infrastructure, as has been the case everywhere. Pretty soon after lockdown, I began conversations with a bunch of local institutions and musicians regarding the possibility of finding a way to present music in a social setting without having to interact with people face to face. And so using just the bare minimum infrastructure just like the most basic infrastructure we could possibly obtain, which was, I think I think we were just putting links on Facebook Live and YouTube. I don't think that's changed much. Um, we assembled these festivals and um, found ways to redirect the proceeds to the venues and to the musicians who were sort of imperiled by the loss of work. So this whole thing has sort of been a social music venture, sort of been a charity venture. You guys have uh, very much uh, been accustomed to rigging up a room You've been live streaming and doing shows that are for radio. It's a much different feel when you're doing it like this, when you definitely can't have anybody there in presence. Yeah, you know, we got to this point that we were playing larger stages, and there's a whole story about the way that this band had to learn how to conform to the volume and sort of the participation mm -hmm. demands of playing big rooms. But at the same time, I never got out of the mindset of this being a bedroom band, because mm -hmm. it really was just kind of generated from our living rooms, like all the music emanates from like our living spaces. Yeah. So shifting back into home recording, it didn't feel like a big challenge to us in the same mm -hmm. way that it has been to others. Yeah, our living space has always been doubled as a rehearsal space. So. Always, for a decade, for a decade yeah. plus at this point. You guys found each other through music and then decided, yes, we can live together and make music together. Well, which came first? Uh, we started making music together in 2009. We met in November or December of 2007. I think we were playing together even before then. Not as Grex, yes. but in other formations. Yeah. I actually met her at a Gamelan concert. Mm -hmm. We both went to Mills College, and one of the big ongoing institutions is a semi-formal Gamelan ensemble. So, uh, Gamelan is an Indonesian orchestra. And sometime between 2009 and 2012, we started cohabiting. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, and continued playing music together. This is the odd thing, because relationship bands are really loaded. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's a really complex enterprise, and sometimes it can lead to a lot of strife. Mm -hmm. In our case, I, I don't think I ever saw the relationship and the music as really distinct. They're kind of the same entity, in a way. Whether or not we think of our marriage as Grex is a completely different issue. But I mean, music no, I mean, is such a present part of our life. Yeah. Getting more into the contemporary pop music realm might have been a little trickier in the household growing up. Or what kind of music were you listening to otherwise? A lot of my very early exposure to music was in church, for sure. And I actually used to play flute in our church choir. We had a lovely church choir for our church, St. Charles in Virginia. Was flute and one of the first instruments you ever learned to play? The second instrument I learned to play I got started, my grandfather bought me like one of those little 
Casio tone mini keyboards. Mini keyboards. Yeah. And I uh, went maybe in first grade, uh, I started playing keyboard. Didn't get really serious about it until maybe towards the end of high school. And I also played uh, tenor sax in a high school jazz band. There must be like recital videos somewhere in the archives elsewhere, maybe at your parents' house. Uh, maybe, maybe not. We come <laughs> from, I, we're old enough that we're pre-cell phone. Good point. Pre, Got it. Or not cell phone. Um, pre-social media. Uh, pre-social media, pre-smartphone. Gotcha, yeah. So I did listen a lot growing up, mostly to pop music. They called it alt rock back in the day. What was the one of the first albums you remember getting of the alt rock variety? OK Computer, I think, was one of the first alt rock yeah. albums that I got. Uh, what about- Alanis Morissette and Portishead were big favorites too. And Carl, what about for you? Uh, what what is an an album or a live experience that uh, when you first started getting into music, you were uh, very much shaped by? The first concert I remember after I became cognizant of music is sort of like an entity was Feral Sanders actually at Catalina's oh, wow. in Los Angeles because I had just gotten into Coltrane and then I you know I had gotten attuned to Feral Sanders as sort of this important figure in the Coltrane legacy um, and I didn't know what he looked like because at that time well I guess the internet was already around but I, I had so little concept of what these people looked like in the present day because all, all of their imagery was on you know decades old LPs and whatnot. So um, when I, I, I remember explicitly talking to my dad about this issue, we were sitting at one of the tables in Catalina's, and uh, Pharaoh Sanders starts the concert by playing soprano, and he walks right past me. And you instantly know who he is, even if you don't you know, know what he looks like. And he played the entire concert that way, just kind of threading through the audience, and it was this really hysterical, sort of ecstatic experience. You know, I, I hadn't been in an environment like that, maybe save for church, where people were really vocally responding to the music as if they were a part of the experience. How old were you when you went to that show? Oof. Uh, maybe 12, 13. I'm curious if that is a reflective of your upbringing or were you uh, independently listening and seeking out jazz music on your own? Well, no. So my, this is just some general background. Sure. Um, but my family is um, deeply embedded in Filipino politics. My aunt is Miriam Defensor Santiago. She's widely renowned as um, the best president the Philippines never had. So she ran for president, the first she ran for president, I think three times. She technically won the election in 1992, but due to uncontained voter fraud, she was never able to take office, never able to challenge the results. So um, she spent the rest of her time uh, serving as a senator, the rest of her time as a public servant, uh, serving as a senator in the Philippines, and she remained deeply influential in that way. But um, she had this catchphrase, which was, I eat death threats for breakfast. And this is the... (laughs) I'm actually not convinced. I, I was thinking about this just the other day. I'm not convinced the car um, won't pull up Fargo style, like outside of our house, you know, with a shotgun and try to, and, and there's like a, like I keep saying there's a non-zero percent chance that we are in danger because of our affiliation with radical Filipino politics. But because of my aunt's prevailing influence in the family and because of a lot of my family's political involvement in the Philippines, I felt like the overriding pressure in my household was to become something like a lawyer, become a doctor, maybe follow my aunt into politics. And so music, I guess, was sort of my outlet for claiming something original, like claiming my space. The thing is, after a while, it just sort of kind of consumed me and it became the way that I begin to view even my aunt's activity. The new album oscillates very fluidly 
there's this one track that you have that's very like Coltrane-esque too. So you've just, you're putting in a lot of really sonic sounds all like wrapped up in one album, which is really, um, I really appreciate that a lot, how diverse it is. That's one of the things that I think we've always tried to do, which is that barring like the music becoming completely tangential, we've tried our best to not self-define as a specific sound there are pragmatic considerations to that but it's also if we came up with something that we thought was meaningful we we always thought to ourselves this should be included even if it doesn't necessarily fit concept wise with the rest of the music since we've gotten a chance to listen to going into this interview a little bit of your sounds we want to focus this hour on music that you have made and i guess we'll go in chronological order i believe um we are looking at the first track of which is this one called Zaphod. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? This piece um, was written before the band was an entity. It was really, this is more of a collaboration between the two of us and it was written for a competition. I believe all the pieces, all of the pieces um, for submission had to be under a certain time, whatever, whatever, however long this is, like a minute, minute and a half, all the pieces for the competition had to be under that amount of time. And so we just did our best to come up with something that felt compositional and complete within that very short span that we were allotted. I'd also like to add something about this song that I had completely forgotten about until you said the name of the song and I was transported back to when we wrote it. Uh, the lyrical content of the song is actually something that we used to sing to my housemate's partner's dog, Raffaello, who's a little chihuahua, who's afraid of hardwood floors. We live in a oh, hardwood floor house. My heart. Oh, my God. <laughs> he was real cute. Uh, and it was so, technically, I think this is the first in a long line of pet songs that this band has produced over the years. Wow, great job. I don't remember any of I had forgotten it until you said the word <laughs> death <on> it, so. <laughs> Well, let's take a listen to uh, this uh, minute-long ode to a chihuahua. wonderful i love all the little details and it's so well segmented that's so weird that was that recorded, was a thing we did that was recorded on audacity <laughs> yeah unbelievable you had to add some flute in there of course right and then you got the guitar from there it blossomed into this beautiful baby grex <laughs> the um the harmonies i'm remembering this now as well were um influenced by the saxophone player julius hemphill he recorded a series of records, I think the most famous of which is called Roy Boy and the Gotham Minstrel, where he just basically overdubbed over himself. I mean, I mean that's the definition of overdubbing, but he, it's basically just a, he created saxophone trios and quartets just on his own. 
and this presaged his group huh. world saxophone quartet, which was, I think, one of the great early saxophone no rhythm section groups. And that's the reason. That, yeah, it's really that's the reason all those atonal harmonies are in there. Ray, what went through your head hearing that? Mostly, did I really sound like that? <laughs> Just kind of really like self-absorbed <laughs> thing to be thinking about, but that's okay. And I guess the other thing I was thinking of was mostly just process-oriented stuff, like, um, you know, how how we were going to get all of those little sounds. And I think we had, like, a bottle of allergy medication. Medicine balls. Medicine balls. I think we even had, like, a spray bottle or something that yeah. we sprayed. The, the spray bottle is, like, the loudest thing. It's very loud. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about this next track, Dysrophidae. Yeah, so Dysrophidae, I... Dysrophidae. I, I did it again along. Damn it. I think you can do it either way. Um, it, you can. It's, 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 is it like Elon or Elon, where you could just like, it doesn't matter how you pronounce it, it's all going to mean the same thing? It depends on who you ask. My schooling is as a biologist. A lot of, you know, the names of things are in Latin, and people tell you it's supposed to be one way or another, but nobody speaks Latin anymore, so who knows? It's written down everywhere, but nobody <laughs> speaks it. But it's uh, so Dysrophidae was a uh, group of ancient, prehistoric, gigantic amphibians that used to roam the earth. Hmm. I think before the time of dinosaurs, but someone's going to look, I'm going to look that up later and realize I was wrong and be mad. But this was about these sort of primordial giant amphibious creatures. Thank mm-hmm. you. 
simply sublime. Way out there, man. <laughs> For sure. I will say that uh, it brought me somewhere. It really did. I thinking about a swamp, a prehistoric swamp. Yeah. I'm not sure what kind of music they would have made back then if they had the tools to make it, but it just felt like I was getting a mood of what it means like to be just in isolation. That music is so patient in a way that I don't know if we'd write something like that now. We couldn't. It took so much yeah. time. That's How long so did it wild. take? Well, I mean, it, not the process of composing it, but just the idea that we were willing to draw out something that static for that long. It's weird because the approach now seems alien. Like this yeah. is the approach of 11 years ago. And um, the, the thing I remember most about it was that when we were writing this music, we had hidden ourselves away in a practice room adjacent to the practice room, uh, more or less owned by a William Winant, who's like one of the great modern percussionists like sonic youth works with him pretty frequently so i just remembered we didn't see anyone except for willie who kept poking his head in the door for a solid week i think that was taken from one of the rehearsals it wasn't even performed at the concert it's like i saw one of those little porthole doors and you just see his head and you kind of look around so yeah so we were in a sort of like proto quarantine when we were writing this music which is the reason it seems so um like insulated the music just has this very insulated like self-contained feel that's so strange it feels weird listening to that I weirdly feel the opposite about it. In terms of... I, I haven't heard this song in a long time, I guess, but I was transported back to like what it felt like at that time. Like We were just... We had not been dating for super long. It was like... the Just sort of like, you know, in the practice room, hanging out, making... That's not necessarily how it was at the time, but just like this thing was so new. You know, like, making the music was new, it was fresh, and the relationship was new and exciting. That's sort of what I think about it. Yeah, the music's it. actually deeply experimental. Like, not even, not, like, sound-wise necessarily, but procedure-wise. It feels yeah. like we're experimenting. I love, like, the way you guys were bouncing the guitar and the piano off each other. It was really beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. We have so much this hour. We really do. I feel like we could probably take a quick breather here for a word from RFB. And when we return... There is more to come with Grex here on Lost and Rewound. Uh, this is Radio Free Brooklyn. I'll come back now. Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air. Support independent community media by pledging whatever you can. All contributions are tax deductible to the fullest extent of the law. Please support with a monthly pledge or one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Hey, thanks for sticking around with us. Um, I'm here solo this week, but not alone. I got Fiona on my side. And uh, Oakland, California is in full effect through the world of Grex, Carl Evangelista, and Ray Scapavia zooming with me today. Uh, guys, uh, I'm really excited to keep on going on with what we got here in the queue. Tell us about this next track. This is a song called Retlaw. What's the difference between this version and the one that eventually appeared on your first album, which is called Live at Home? So this version is from our first performance which was at my thesis concert. Fred Frith was there. That's, I think, one of the reasons we're still here is Fred Frith, after the concert, said, hey, that was pretty cool. He took um, Ray aside and was like, oh, you make him a better guitar player. 
and I think that, <laughs> which is which is very generous of Red to say. Yeah, so Red Law is a song about a hotel ghost at the uh, what is it, the Walter Hotel? I think it's actually Hotel Red Law, but it's hotel named Red after. Hotel Law, but it's yeah. named after someone whose name was Walter. And whenever things would go wrong at the hotel, people would just say like, "Oh, like that's Walter at it again," you know. He, he might have been the owner or some sort of proprietor. Yeah. I'm not really familiar. But anyway, this song actually became our sort of like theme song for maybe five... We used to play it at every show. Every single years. show. It yeah. actually became our most in-demand song. We, we I don't even think we could play it anymore. <laughs> Thank you. 
so Mills College is a women's college, and Ray was um, in bio. We're the same age, but Ray was in biology. Um, she was playing in the music department. I had finished undergrad early, so I was in the grad department, which is co-ed. And um, I, I think I was in over my head in terms of who I was working with, because I was studying under Fred. I was studying with Roscoe Mitchell, the Art Ensemble of Chicago. Just a bunch of really intimidating, really huge figures. And you were one of the youngest people. I was one of the youngest people the there. Department, yeah. And so I, I felt like a lot of my time there was me responding to this really didactic sort of psychology, attempting to question and second guess every single bit of knowledge I had, which is actually, I think, pretty paralyzing for someone of that age. The thing that I remember the most listening to that and playing with you was that instantly I felt like I was set free, like I could just do whatever I wanted. And that was the thing I didn't have as a student. I think it's that thing that I still feel like it's so great to tap into performing now is just feeling natural, feeling like yourself. You know, that's the thing I hear there. Have you ever been haunted or did you ever have a ghost experience? Yes. I was, my first year at Mills, I was in the dorms. And, you know, it's a really old college. It was founded for, like, daughters of, of people who came here during the gold rush you know, like a finishing school, sort of. And so, you know, these old buildings, the dorms, there are all these stories about them. And uh, one morning I woke up. I did not have a roommate. I heard someone open the door, and I was sort of, like, facing the wall. Like, I was in bed facing the wall. And I heard someone walk over to me, and I felt the bed move, and someone sat on the bed and put their hand on my shoulder. I was petrified. I was like, I'm not going anywhere. So I was very still. I don't know how long it was. And then they got up and they left the room and closed the door, at which point I shot out of bed and like ran out of the room. And of course the door was locked and no one was there. So ghost. Were you in an unaltered state of mind? I don't, I don't know what you're implying here. <laughs> I've got sleep paralysis. I have a sleeping disorder. So mm. I've also been abducted by aliens and all sorts of fun stuff. I haven't heard that story. I, I think come been from married for uh, a very three generations of alien abductees who all what? had sleep Yeah. Me, my dad, and my granddad. Mm-hmm. This is also the first I've heard of this. I need to so, talk to your dad about that. He's a very no-nonsense. He would not call it. He does not believe he was abducted by aliens, but we all had the classic alien abduction experience. This is deeply cryptic. Yeah. So, yeah. I uh, admittedly have never had these experiences, but I think that might be because I'm an alien. So there's no reason to be dealing with aliens if I'm the alien. It sort of normalizes the whole Truth thing. Truth is out there, yeah. man. For <laughs> yeah, sure. definitely. Tell us about this next track that is a live track of which uh, you have specified. Out in LA, you performed this? Or, sorry, I, I remind me again. This is called Roscoe Mitchell, in parentheses, Echo Curio. It's called Roscoe Mitchell because it references something that Roscoe, the great saxophone player, member of the Art Ensemble Chicago, something that he said. Uh, which is that he he issued so much really important, historically important work, like canonical work in new music and experimental music and jazz. And um, I, I just remembered sitting um, and listening to him one time, and he was saying, oh, my, the be- my best work is still ahead of me, which is such a wild thing to say at what would nominally be the end of your career. But I was just, he's thinking about it from a different mindset. He's a composer. He's a performer. Musicians have longer lifespans. And so this was just about him, and just like the idolization of his unwillingness to think that his day is over. Mm-hmm. I just think that's a really spectacular thing. Echo Curio, a now long gone Los Angeles venue. Um, I think that was the first place we played in Los Angeles and we shared the bill with a religious cult. 
Right? They were a performance art group. I thought that they were also just like a functional cult. Did I miss what, what kind of cult are we talking here? Something about clowns, like a clown cult. I'm and sorry. What? A clown uh, cult? An old sacrament that was taking place with like blood or something. I, I want to say donuts involved. Am I misremembering this? Yeah. Is, are, are you sure we're not talking about ICP here and there was Fago as well to wash uh, down those donuts? There's much more of a satanic vibe. Very to overt. It oh that. dear. Yeah. A more satanic vibe than ICP. I guess that makes sense, right? They're I more positive. They were, I, I thought it was performance art. It was oddly self-serious. That was the that was what was interesting. Serious, is that yeah. it, it felt real, but mm -hmm. it felt so real that there was irony in it. It was. Okay. I remember thinking it was. Serious, but you know. Before we hear the song, I just want to point out that this song has morphed into a song that you can hear on everything you said was wrong. It's one of the extended tracks. Bonus tracks. It's a bonus track. It's called Boo Ghost called now. Boo Ghost. Completely different. Mm -hmm. Completely, Completely different. different song. Completely different. Uh, Roscoe Mitchell, Echo Curio, here on LNR.
back we started playing with the drummer Robert Lopez and then uh, when his schedule got too full we were touring with like a bass drum and a snare drum with a little pedal attached to it underneath our instruments that we'd play skeleton crew and then style. we had a, now we have a sampler but it's so interesting how well some of this stuff is hanging together without any sort of percussion it's kind of yeah and the weird it just it feels like an alternative performance structure i think that's a thing that i'd kind of forgotten about which is yeah. that the lack of professionalism was kind of the point mm -hmm. you know it, it, it's very difficult to evaluate it because it's just so left of center and I think the more professional the band has gotten, the easier it is to evaluate in traditional ways. But then at the same time, it just I think it kind of loses that. That's an uncatchable moment. You just kind of do that for a period of time, and then you either just stop or you just get better as musicians. Yeah. It's like very difficult. To, it's so strange. It's so alien to me. Mm -hmm. Are you feeling like you are trying to produce yourself to a place where you could learn from the past and just continue to move on and move on and move on and not feel like you have to focus too much on what you made, but just continue to progress yourself continuously. You know, this is something I was thinking about the other day, which is that musicians now, because of how easy it is to self-record and how easy it is to release, you know, via Bandcamp or SoundCloud or whatever, it's analogous to the way that, you know, babies are always on social media now, like the entire lifespan of bands is kind of out in public display. I, f I feel like that wouldn't have necessarily been the case in the 60s or 70s or really even 20 years ago. No. And the thing is that we never really stopped. I don't think we ever arrived at a sound where we, where we thought, this is it, let's just call it and just reproduce this. I think, if anything, the music we're making now is the closest to that, where it's like, huh, kind of like this. Every album has this really concrete leap forward kind of baked into it. It's not as if we're trying to avoid or trying to improve upon the past in any self-conscious way it's just like we never really stopped attempting to develop and so i think part of that process is just kind of airing any sort of imperfections that's always been a part of our whole thing if it feels imperfect if it feels incomplete that's just a human thing that's always been a part of our band i and love so that just here in front but several years removed is really a trip it's really strange for our next track a song called little me this is a song that also appears on your first album, Live at Home. What could we expect to hear from this particular version that you have provided to us? This is the actual album version. I just thought it was a good time to listen back to it. But this was also oddly recorded in like a multi-purpose room at Mills College. It's the same basic procedure. It's always essentially a home recording. So Yeah, and one thing, I guess one thing that's sticking out to me, I think all of, correct me if I'm wrong, I think all of these songs except for Zappa were recorded live, you know, so it's just two, That's true. two people doing what they can do. There's no overdubbing.
forget about me while you sort your laundry um yeah i mean I, I, that's real <laughs> i started going to mills college because i was really into creative writing a really strong creative writing program there and this song is based on a short story i wrote about the son of a single dad who is a mad scientist and creates for his son's birthday a tiny clone of the sun as a gift uh, it's just him, but it's tiny, and he names it Little Me, and, you know, he takes it everywhere, and, you know, he plays with it, it's a great gift, he loves Little Me, but as he gets older, he starts to get really resentful of Little Me, because it's, like, this burden, right, and, like, like why would you give a kid, like, a clone that you have to take care of, and, you know, it can get hurt, and, you know, the kid's got to go to school and try to make friends and all this stuff, and hmm. so he starts leaving Little Me at home all the time. And, you know, he has a little pocket that he puts Little Me in. And then one day he forgets Little Me and puts Little Me in the wash with his laundry. And so after that, like, the dad, you know, always asking, like, oh, how's Little Me? And so he would make something up about Little Me and, like, how Little Me was doing from that point on. That is shockingly literal. That is so literal. <laughs> like, I literal. mean, I, I relate. He was able to connect with his father. Like, he yeah. Father how he was doing by talking about Little Me. He died in the laundry. <laughs> uh, honestly, the little me uh, analogy made me think of my recorder and how, like, I always brought it with me everywhere I went to record myself. So in any event, I, I was the growing Elon, but for posterity purposes, I was recording little me because now here I am all these years later listening back to all these old, very, very antiquated sounds from the past. That's, that's the reason why this show is even in existence but even still like the the nature of posterity and recording yourself for years and years to come so it's sort of a snake eating on its own tail i suppose is i guess what i'm getting at here with uh the stuff that you're sharing today this is kind of the story i think of a lot of modern independent and experimental music which is that you just do something then 10 years later someone's like hey that was great and you're like, that's great, because like, I don't, <laughs> it was just a thing we dropped and then it disappeared. But this album has a bizarre cult following, we've discovered, probably really? because there's so little information in the liner notes. It kind of established this mystique, people wanted to know who we were. There was this event where a lot of now semi-famous, prosperous musicians covered like half of this record. And that's the thing that kind of blows my mind is that there were so many people who listened to this and they were like, oh, that's great. And for us, it was just the thing that we did. We recorded, by the way, this entire album between the hours of 10 and I think 4 a.m. 10 p.m. and 4 a.m. 10 p.m. and 4 a.m. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's, that's the witching hour. I love it. Yeah, it was just this thing like, well, we've been practicing this music. We just want to put it down on tape. And that's what it was. But the fact that people kind of enjoyed it or found something sort of, you know, unique or alchemic in it is super bizarre to me because mm -hmm. it was just the thing we did. We have time for one more track, and this one is called Stumpfuckers. 
After I graduated from college, I worked for a couple of years for the Forest Service. I was certified as a type 2 firefighter, but I didn't do much of I I only went on like one or two prescribed burns. And there's these beetles, I forget what the family is, but um, they're basically attracted to smoke and heat um, because they can only lay their eggs in the charred wood. When we were on the burn, you know, like all these giant beetles would start swarming and they'd be like trying to bite like get under your skin oh, and the wow. firefighters called them stump fuckers. Boil through 
Listening to this has given me a better modern day contemporary appreciation for kind of like the reason that we're still playing together. It just there's something about it that just kind of works, like in terms of being able to play off of one another. This is actually really nice introspection for us. So I think it'd just be good for us to take stock of what we've done and what our purpose is. Because again, there's so much in our music now that's of literal activist, you know, clear, both conceptual and artistic purpose. Everything you said was wrong is available on Bandcamp and can be purchased there. Is there any other things, uh, social medias or events or another lockdown festival that you want to let people know about? Sure. So the album is at grex.bandcamp.com. I guess we were early enough to get grex.bandcamp.com. We also have been doing a lot of music videos. For this record. For this record. And we have a YouTube channel and it's Grex the Band Official. And um, I believe we're not going to, it might not be called Lockdown, but we're probably going to be doing a New Year's Eve, New Year's stream with a bunch of other musicians, mm -hmm. maybe by Coastal. We're still kind of putting that together, but I kind of like the idea if we're not going to be able to celebrate among masses of people, we're still going to be able to like kind of listen to music together. So that's probably going to happen. You can find details probably when they're up at www.grexsounds.com. Carl Evangelista and Ray Scampavia here today on this week's edition of Lost and Rewound. Guys, thank you so much. Yeah, thank, thank you for you. having us. This has been a joy. Huge joy. edition aka episode 229 be sure to check out all our previous episodes up on apple podcasts soundcloud or at our main hub which shorthand can be found at rfb.nyc slash lar and of course if you wish to be a guest on the show you can email us please do lost and rewound at radiofreebrooklyn.org my name is Alon Danziger, signing off here from the lair, wishing you safety, sanity for yet one more week. And if you are in the States and have not voted already, get on it. Bye.
remembered that I left. I can't believe I'm saying this phrase. I left the refrigerator running. I gotta go, um, not catch it. I gotta go pull the plug. Give me one second because I'm hearing the feedback. Sure thing. It's like a classic trope. Is your refrigerator running? 